Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving you, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. At this point, Joshua was assuming the headship, the leadership of the congregation of the people of Israel, the people of God. He was becoming their commander and uh, a shepherd to them, um, their spiritual and military leader. It was a tremendous responsibility and not a responsibility in which he hadn't had an example. When Joshua was a young man, he was Moses' aide. He was like Moses' administrative assistant or helper or servant or secretary. Um, he probably got him coffee and water, and, and he probably washed his feet. Um, he probably did for Moses the things Moses needed, um, per Moses' convenience. And he was also with Moses. He was Moses' disciple. So the scripture says, that before the tabernacle was built, there was this tent where Moses would go meet with God, and God would talk to him. It says, God talked with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And then when Moses left the tent, his face glowed light, like regular physical light, came out of his face, and it freaked people out. They're like, ah, that's too weird, Moses. You need to like, were a veil. So he capitulated to them and he actually put a veil on so that his face, because he, like the angels that stand in the presence of Jesus, are, you know, those who are like on fire and who are glowing and like even radiant because they're really reflecting the glory of the living God, of I am God 
gave his name to Moses, he said, I am who I am. And was when Moses was with this one in awesomeness, in power, in intimacy, Moses' face actually started glowing. And the scripture says, when Moses would go back to the people, sometimes Joshua would stay there in the tent. Joshua grew up loving the presence of God. He grew up, you could think of it as he was at all the meetings. And then when they were over and everybody went home, including the pastor, he stayed to lock up. And, and he just stayed there and worshipped and meditated and enjoyed God's presence. And some of us didn't grow up enjoying God's presence. Today we're going to look at a path to enjoy the Lord and to meditate in his word. And we're going to discuss how we can increase our fellowship with God by speaking and meditating on his word in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we powerfully encounter the Holy Spirit in lifelong meditation on the word of God in his presence, for the Holy Spirit accompanies the words of Christ. This is how Joshua grew up. He was one of the dozen spies that when Israel was first delivered out of slavery in Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, they uh, went through the wilderness, and they didn't take too long, and they got to the border of Canaan, this land that God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that they didn't see, but it was coming to, those, to, to the descendants of those to whom it had been promised. And the people, um, 12 spies went into the land to check it out and to prepare for the invasion. Ten of them came back and said, we can't. And they'd just seen God do 10 mighty miracles, destroying the reputation of 10 of the gods of Egypt, the God of the Nile, the God of these different animals, you know, the God, the, the Ra, the sun God, right? And, and God had mightily delivered the people from false gods or demon gods and into the presence of the living God. And they just walked through the desert, having everything they needed. And then they get to this place where there are some uh, some bad guys, and they're like, uh, it's not going to happen. And Joshua's like, no, no, no. And he and Caleb were the two spies who came back, and they probably tore their clothes and fell down at the feet of the people, and like, don't listen to them. Like, didn't you see, like, a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago, what happened in Egypt, what the Lord did to deliver us mightily? Joshua knew the God that he was going to serve his whole life. And the people didn't listen. And every single person in that entire generation over the course of the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness, outside the land, wandering in the desert, the Lord provided all their needs. He gave them water from the rock. He gave them bread that came from heaven. But every one of them, for their faithlessness, their wickedness, their rebellion, and their sin, died. But... God saw to it that Joshua didn't die and Caleb didn't die. They were the only two men over 20 years old, I believe, who were still living. And so 40 years later, we come to this text. Just, they prepare to go into the land of Canaan. Now they're prepared for the second time, but this time they're a little bit better prepared. They go back through the whole law of God. 
They reteach it. It's the second law, Deuteronomy, second law, right? And Moses is allowed to go up on the mountain and see the land before they cross the Jordan. And he sees it, but he's not permitted to enter it because he had misrepresented the Lord and disobeyed him. Um, and he dies up on the mountain, an old man full of years. And Joshua, who is probably up on the mountain with him, um, comes to the people, Moses' disciple, who is these 40 years in the wilderness, spent all this time being with God and loving and enjoying him. And God starts off with some really comforting words to him. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, well, verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now get up. Go over this river, you and everybody. Those are, that's, that's pretty confrontational. Probably isn't very comforting. I think he knew well that Moses was dead and was still grieving. But the Lord said, I am going to be with you, and I'm going to fight your battles I'm going to go before you and do what you can't do, truly what Moses couldn't do, shepherd a people that he didn't have the spiritual power to bring under my shepherding. I will be faithful to Moses, to, to you as I was with Moses, and I will bring you into this land. Let's read it a second time, starting halfway through verse 5. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. This is going to get repetitive. So look for what's being repeated. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the Bible so far, right? The holy word of God delivered from that generation to the next generation at the leading and power of the Holy Spirit. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that, now it gets real repetitive, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Here's another repetition. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Like, didn't I just tell you this? Yes, you did. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Why is the Bible so repetitive in the Old Testament? Like, why is like Genesis through Deuteronomy and now the beginning of Joshua? There's a lot of repetition. Have you ever... Um, gotten a little frustrated or bored reading Leviticus, you're like, you just said this. Why does every sentence start with and? Can I get an amen from the grammar Nazis? <laughs> Thank you. 
It's, it's pretty repetitive. Well, I remind you that Moses was not a guy like any of us. It's likely that his IQ was higher than all of ours. It's probably true. His education was certainly better than all of ours. Moses grew up in the house of Pharaoh, right? So Moses had the best education on the planet. He went to the best of the Ivy League schools. It was the King's College. And who got in? The King's kids. And who were their instructors? The, the wisest, the smartest, the most successful, the most educated, the most experienced people in the known world. Pharaoh paid big bucks, and he, he actually owned them, and he had them come to the palace and teach his kids, right? Moses had a really good education. Do you think he went to a literature class or a poetry class? Yeah, duh. Like... <laughs> This is like a total liberal arts education. Like, he had to be educated in everything, like all the children of the king, so that they, you know, maybe if the first one died, the second one could be ready to rule the country and to pass on the culture and the everything to the whole next generation. The king, like, was in charge of making that happen and, and of representing their father, the pharaoh. Well, Moses had another spiritual father, and it was the Lord. But... He certainly had a fantastic education. And when we read the Law of Moses, a.k.a. the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and we think, this is pretty repetitive, I'm a little bored, maybe we should have paid better attention in poetry class. Where did the, our letter X come from? What language? Greek. Okay. What does the letter X look like in the Greek language? The capital one. X. You nailed it. Um, <laughs> looks like a capital X, right? And what's it called? Chi. So, K-I-X. You can see there's a little bit of tradition passed down here. So, in ancient uh, Egyptian school, you would learn in your literature classes, the, the poets would write sometimes in a poetry structure that was shaped like an X. It started out at the top or the tip or the outside of the X, and, and it said something, it said something, another thing, then it said a third thing, and then it made its main point. And then you repeated the third thing, then you repeated the second thing, then you repeated the first thing. And here we are reading these poems that are, the Pentateuch is full of them, and Joshua chapter 1 has one, we just read it, and... Maybe our first thought was, it's kind of repetitive. He must be trying to make a point. His point is that X marks the spot. Like, have you, ever, have you ever watched a pirate movie or read a pirate book, not counting Philadelphia or Mogadishu pirates, that didn't have a treasure map with an X in it that marked the center point where the treasure was? Well, I did actually. It was, um, it was a half a map, and it had a little arrow on the side, and you were supposed to hold it up into a mirror. Well, it still made an X. And you just had to kind of figure it out. You had to know how to read the map. This is actually not that complex. It's just we didn't go to ancient Egyptian um, school for kings. Well, you have now. <laughs> now you know how to read a chiasm. In a chiasm, an X-ism, an X marks the spot-ism, the scripture writers would say something, then they'd say another thing, then they'd say another thing. 
Sometimes it was one thing, then the X, and then repeat the one thing. Sometimes they'd say one, two things, and then the middle of the X, and then repeat the second, and then the first thing. Sometimes it'd be three. Sometimes it's 10 things deep. So there are some really beautiful chiasms you can find in the scripture that are, they blow your mind. You're like, really? You've been writing for two or three chapters, and what you said in that chapter, and this chapter, and then here, and here, and here, and here, you, like the middle point of that is your main point? Yes. Right? We're not reading too much into the scriptures. These are really good writers, really good, uh, really well-educated people, and they're using an, an exism, a chiasm. So... In our passage today, God says to Joshua, so remember, God uses chiasms too. He is the poet of time and history. He says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And then he finishes the passage with, for the Lord your God, that's me, Joshua, is with you wherever you go. The second thing he says is, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. He later repeats it, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Then he says a third thing that gets repeated. Being careful to do according to all the law, that is, all the Bible, that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. He later repeats it, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So what's, what's the treasure that's marked by the X in this passage. It's, it's this. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. This is what Joshua had been doing his whole life. Now, at, at least 60 years old, I believe, maybe older. Um, He's had a lifetime of doing this. Now God's telling him one main thing. I'm going to be with you. Like, be strong. I got this. Uh, Do everything that was passed down to you. You'll be successful. And my main point is, don't stop saying the Bible. Don't stop teaching it to your kids. Don't stop reading it and speaking it to your wife. I don't know if Joshua was married. Let's assume maybe he was. So don't stop teaching it to all of your soldiers before you go into battle and after you come back from battle. Don't stop delivering sermons and meditations and praying. Pray the scriptures. Don't let it come out of your mouth. This is a really big statement. Like, How can you not stop talking about something? We've all met somebody who couldn't stop talking about someone. You know, usually they just started dating them or just got engaged. And and they can't stop thinking about the person or they can't stop talking about it. Joshua 
knew the secret that in the word of God, he was meeting with the living word of God. And when he read the Bible, he was fellowshipping with the Lord, and he couldn't stop talking about him. And so God, at 60 plus years of age, tells him, this is the main thing. Do this all the time. You'll live, you'll be successful. That's where you'll get your strength. And in this, I will be with you. And meditate on it day and night. Hmm. Here's another poetry term. Uh, I believe it's called a merismus. Is that right? Merism. In a merism, you say two opposite things, but you don't mean that plus that. You mean all of it. So when he says day and night here, he doesn't mean from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. you talk about the Bible, and then from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. you talk about the Bible and think about it and meditate on it. He means all the time. Well, that's an easy one because day and night does cover all 24 hours. So when you talk about two sides of a coin, you're talking about the whole coin, everything about it. When the scriptures say that he's Lord of heaven and earth, it doesn't mean he's Lord of the, the imaginary spiritual reality that some people think is very small and is in one place somewhere in outer space, and that's heaven, and that's where you go when you die, and then the planet earth, but not the other planets, and not the spiritual realm, and not Satan or demons, and not unbelievers. When it says that he's Lord of heaven and earth, that means he's Lord of everything down here, and everything up there, it means he's Lord of everything and everyone everywhere. That's a merism. And there are over, you'll find hundreds of them in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms. When it says, you shall meditate on it day and night, he means you shall, for the rest of your life, meditate on, think about the Bible and rethink it, and rethink it, and read it, and out loud, and say it, and teach it, and do it all the time. This is what Joshua was all about. His personality was all wrapped up in reading the Bible, and in talking about it, and thinking about it. And like when he had conversations with people, there may have been people who were annoyed because he just talked about the Bible. Like he was all about the Word of God. And Joshua is an example and a pattern for you, every one of us. And this commandment is not to him only, but to us. To meditate means to chew. Cows don't have four stomachs. They have one stomach, but it's not like our stomachs. Cows eat grass and other stuff, and they chew it. Um... It first goes into the rumen, the first part of the cow's stomach. Um, they, they chew their grass just enough to swallow it. And it goes into the rumen where they ruminate on it, where they meditate on it. And there, um, their stomach begins to break down complex plant products like grass. Then... Um, it has a second stage. The food goes to, uh, they, they, they bring it back up to their mouth, and then they chew it again. The grass, their food, then mixes with the cow's saliva and turns into cud. Cows will burp the cud into their mouths and chew it to help break it down more. 
when you see a cow that looks like she is chomping on bubble gum, she is really chewing her cud. There's another section of the stomach, um, the omasum, omasum. There, the water is recycled and drawn back out of their food. Then there's the other part with another Latin term where the food is finally digested, similar to what happens in your stomach. So we've mostly heard the, the saying that cows have four stomachs. Well, it's really one stomach, but cows don't just eat their food, they meditate on their food. The ancient Hebrew word for meditate in this passage in Joshua 1 means to, to chew and re-chew and re-chew. So when we read the Bible, we don't just go through our yearly Bible reading plan each year or whatever. We also spend time in it and we dwell in it. It's just not like a religious exercise where you're, you're trying to get through the Bible in a year. Um, it's, it's eating it to get all of the nutrition, all of the life, all of the sweetness, all of the health, all of the, the water out of it. That's what this word means. So meditation is more than a fast read. When Joshua went into the land at the head of the people, his strength that God had commanded him to have came from somewhere. Have you had a dark time in your life where your strength was all gone or are you going through one? And have you gone to the word of God and there found that the living word of God, Jesus is waiting to commune with you there in your tent and to be with you and to let his strength become your strength. This is how and why we read the Bible. What can you expect to happen if you meditate on the Bible all the time? Probably something similar to what happened to Joshua. Fast forward to Joshua chapter 5. The end of Joshua chapter 5. The people have crossed this river Jordan and they've gone into the land and they're about to start doing what they came to do to take dominion and possession of it. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Right? Like, obviously this guy has come for blood. Like, so what does Joshua do? Chapter 1, he was, just command, he was just told that no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Right? So Joshua confronts him. And he, like the mighty man he is, he says, Are you for us or for our adversaries? What does the man say back? No. Those are your only two options. And he said, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua realizes who the real mighty man is here. And he falls on his face to the earth and he worships him. Do people in the Bible like worship angels like the angel Gabriel and Michael and stuff when they appear to them? 
there are a couple of times in the scripture where somebody, where an angel appears to a person and they do just what Joshua did. You know, they fell to the ground and started to worship them. And the angel, like, figuratively speaking, whacks them with his, with his rod, you know, and says, like, get up. Like, don't do it. I'm a servant like you. Everywhere in the Bible that an angel appears to somebody, like a regular, you know, angel made by God to do God's bidding, just like how he made us to worship and enjoy him forever and to do his beautiful will and to enjoy doing his will and to enjoy meditating on his ways and his will. Whenever a man or a woman like us sees an angel in the scripture um, and starts to worship, the angel immediately tells him, knock it off. But this angel, which means messenger, angel isn't, a, angel isn't the word, messenger is the word. We call it angel in English, but we could have said messenger. This messenger of God doesn't say, quick, get up, don't worship me. You're about to commit a horrible sin by worshiping a creature, a created thing, rather than the creator who is God to be praised forever. No, instead... When Joshua falls on his face to the earth and worships him, Joshua says to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. When we meditate on the word of God, we read it thoughtfully and we read it with our memories. And we remember the rest of the Bible. Where else in the Bible did we see somebody having to take off their sandals because they weren't standing on regular ground, they were standing on holy ground? Moses. As God was with Moses, God is now with Joshua. God appeared to Moses in the fire, and he spoke to him out of the fire, and he said, Moses, Moses. Moses responded. I didn't write it down, but I meant to. Well, Moses responded by um, asking the Lord who he was after God told him to do something. God told him to take off his sandals because he was standing, the place where he was standing was holy ground because God was there and he made the ground that he touched holy, and the people that he touched holy. And now he had come down to sanctify Moses to the purpose for which he had called him. And he's like, take off your dirty shoes. So he took off his sandals, and even his dirty feet became holy. Like we talked about um, a couple of weeks ago when we looked at uh, Zechariah chapter 3, and the messenger of the Lord, who we discerned was none other than Jesus Christ, met that high priest, Joshua, and he had his dirty, his filthy garments taken off from him, and he gave him pure vestments, pure clothes. When the Lord touches you, you become holy. The Lord touches us in the scriptures. You should be encountering the living God when you read the word. Notice that our passage, which itself is a chiasm, marking the spot, meditate on this day and night. Don't let it depart from your mouth. Meditate on it all the time. That's sandwiched in between Moses' encounter with God, who appeared in the fire and told him, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground, 
and someone appearing to Joshua, but this time he's not talking to him out of a fire that didn't burn up the bush around which it was burning. Instead, he appears to him as a man. It's the same, it's the same one appearing to him. He says the same thing. When we meditate, we look for repetition in the scripture. And this is a beautiful one. And this passage teaches us that we find the living God. And we haven't come to this burning mountain that can't be touched like Moses came to with the people that terrified them. We've come to the one who has come down to us as a man and condescended to our level right in the midst of us being sinners, right while you're in the middle of committing sin, right while you're in trouble, right while you're grieving and experiencing loss, in all of these things, you had a good day, you had a bad day, Jesus is here in our midst. He's been very gracious and kind to us, and he's come close. He's come very close, and he's, he's taken off his glory and laid it aside, and he's come down and walked among us, and he's revealed himself to us as one who was, his, his hands were touched. People saw him. They heard him with regular ears. But when God came down on the mountain and spoke with Moses out of this smoke and fire and everything, when he gave the Ten Commandments, the, the people like, couldn't even stand to listen to it. They said, Moses, you go up and talk with God. You be our mediator. Now Jesus has come down. But where is Jesus now? He's at the right hand of God, right hand of the Father. He's ruling over all creation because he's the king. He's the commander. He's the real commander. Joshua wasn't the real commander of the armies of God's people. He quickly recognized and bowed to his commander. Jesus is that commander as he is our commander. Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, the seat of power, the seat of authority. It's not a second place seat. It's the right hand. And he's praying for you. And he's praying that you would know him and believe in him. He's praying that you would be faithful and that when spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms would sift you like wheat to see what you're made of, that you wouldn't fall apart and that instead he who holds all things together by the word of his power will hold you together. He's doing this by praying, by commanding that it be done and by speaking his words to you. He, as you meditate in his word, is creating his faithfulness in you. You're, you're not becoming a better person, per se. You're becoming a person who is sharing in his holiness. He's praying that you would be one with him and that we would be one with one another. And that we would be one with one another even as God is one. And that's something I don't even hope to understand because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are very much only one God. But he's praying for us right now that as we live together, do life together, and meditate on his word, 
all day, day, night. When you wake up in the night, remember, not the movie you watched, not that awful thought, not the thing you're afraid of that's been bothering you for days and days that you think might happen. Think about instead his promises. Think about his ways. Think about the scripture you have memorized. Think about his faithfulness, which is much more important than your faithfulness. The good news is, it's just not about you. When we read the word, we see that there's just one chief end to man's purpose. There's one main reason for existence. All is for his glory. We, we are joined with him in a real way. We are married with him. This is a process that is completed and in some way is happening. And it's happening when you read the Word. So read your Bible. Meditate on it. Become a person who was empowered, like Joshua was empowered to do the will of God, although he was imperfect. Become a person who is empowered by the one who empowered Joshua, who has not just appeared in fire, terrifying. People can't stand to listen to it. It's too much. Nor could they even muster up the obedience needed to be God's people. He hasn't appeared to us just as a man with his sword out saying, I'm going to drive out your enemies before you, and I'm going to do what you can't do, and I'm going to protect you, and I'll be your peace, your shield here, your shield here. I'll be a shield round about you, like, like there are mountains all around Jerusalem, so I will surround my people both now and forever. And my sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is God's commands and God's voice, which destroys evil before you, so you just go in and clean up the spoil. No, it's even better than that. In these last days, which began a long time ago, in the last days, the prophet said a number of times, he would pour out his Spirit. This is... This is a new covenant we have in his blood. This isn't like the covenant of works that was so good, that was so blessed and worth reading and valuable. It was a treasure marked by this X that Joshua was to read it all day and all night and make his whole life about it. We have something better than what was passed down to Joshua. We have the covenant of grace upon grace. We have the blood of Christ in his finished work and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God was with Joshua. Yes, God was with Joshua like he was with Moses. Yes. Now, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. And he teaches us all things and he guides us into all truth. And that doesn't happen through Eastern-style meditation. What's that? It's where you sit in some kind of real spiritual posture, and you pretty much empty your mind, or empty your mind of everything but one thing, and, you know, like, a, like the number one, for example, and you just think about the number one, and you're basically just emptying your mind of everything, everything that can be treasured. But biblical meditation, our kind of meditation, is not like humanistic meditation. Our kind of meditation is reading the Bible and not just with our minds. If you read the Bible with your mind and 
you don't, you aren't willing to do God's will, you won't be able to understand it. There are a lot of colleges that I wasn't smart enough to get into. My SAT score wasn't high enough to get into some of the colleges that some of you attended. My, my, my IQ wasn't high enough to accomplish some of the intellectual feats that people in this room have done. But Jesus didn't say, you got to be real smart and you got to work real hard and you can't mess up on your Bible reading plan. When I started preparing for this message a couple weeks ago, I began praying you know, throughout the day that God would give me a hunger for his word. That's where we start. I didn't start with trying hard. I started with the gospel, which is help, which is what my private prayer life usually looks like. And it would be good if yours did too. That's probably a a more gospel-centered prayer than some of the things we pray for. God, help me to be strong. Sometimes we mean in my own strength, for my own sake, so that I have a good day. Like, that's cool, but the Lord wants something better for you. He wants to show himself strong on your behalf so that he might receive all the glory because it's not about you. And it is not to the wise and the educated that God, like the Pharisees who read the Bible day and night. The Pharisees, there's probably never been a a good Pharisee who read the Bible um, less than any of us will ever be able to read the Bible in our whole lives. Like these were pretty serious guys, but they were serious about themselves. They loved money. They loved what people thought of them. They were lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. And because they weren't willing to do God's will, they couldn't perceive Christ when they read the scriptures. They didn't meet God there. Jesus said, it's because you you don't believe that you don't understand. He said um, at least a half a dozen times throughout the Gospels alone, just what's recorded, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, like, haven't you read? That'd be like, you know, my friend John Luke saying to my friend John Weiss, like, John, haven't you ever read, like, Exodus? Haven't you ever read Deuteronomy? (laughs) Yeah? I happen to know you guys have both read those many, many, many times. So, meditating on the scripture, which is meditating on him, the living word in the written word, meditating on him in his word, isn't done on our own strength, by our own effort. I can't tell you when it was, but sometime in 2017, I got behind on my Bible plan. So about two weeks ago, as I was beginning to prepare for this message and starting with the prayer, have mercy on me, O God. I'm a sinner, like usual. Please make me hungry for your word and make me want to read your word more. And I prayed the same prayer for you guys, many, many times in the last couple of weeks, and will continue to do so. Um, I read First Timothy, and it was probably the best time I'd ever read First Timothy. It was, it was so sweet, and I just saw all these things that, uh, that I had been like discipled in for the last seven years and beyond that just come to life, and I, I realized things I'd never realized before, and it was, it was like honey. 
I love honey. And when the Gray family buys honey, we don't like go to Kroger and buy honey. We go to some kind of farmer's market and we buy like the fresh, raw honey. And believe me, it tastes way better than like regular store-bought pasteurized honey and it's worth it. When you read the Word of God, don't do Christianity light and have a great 15-minute devotion every day for your life. I should say devotionette. It's probably true that most of us in this room have less than two hours a day to read the Bible. So you need a plan to get to taking in more scripture. There are three takeaways we're going to take from this quickly. If it printed. I think it got deleted. So we're going to... When you read the Bible and meditate on it, number one, you have to actually read it. So you need a plan to take in a lot of scripture, to read through it quickly and to also read through it slowly. And to do that, it takes time. You need not just a plan to, you know, I set out to finish my reading through the Bible in 2017. So I read 1 Timothy and then I read 1 Peter and I read uh, 1 John with uh, Adam the other night. That was, that was sweet time of fellowship. It was, it was one of the many great times I've read First John. It's one of my favorite books. I have so many favorites. Read, uh, read through Hebrews, and I think it was the only time I'd ever read through Hebrews without getting up. Um, and it was wonderful. And I kind of realized, wow, this is, I knew it was all about Christ, but I realized it was a lot more about Christ than I thought before. And it started and finished with him. And it was this beautiful, poetic book, really masterfully written. And I'm not trained in literature, but even I could see, like, this is a a smart guy who's empowered by the Holy Spirit to pen the glories of Christ on a page. And when you meditate on his word, his Holy Spirit accompanies it, and you will know God in his word. It's not just you opening your Bible when you read it. It's God who opens the Bible to you. It is Christ who ministers, which means serves, his word to you. It wasn't just the, the, 12, the feet of the twelve that he washed. He is waiting in your living room every day, or your prayer closet, or wherever you read your Bible, on your phone or in print. He's waiting for you there to, to strip off his robes of glory and to get down on his knees and wash your feet with the water of the word and to cleanse and sanctify you and to fellowship with you and to say, as I was with Moses and Joshua, so also I'm with you and all of your brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and spiritual children in the body of Christ. You can't be washed in the water of the word if you don't have tons of it memorized and you don't read it all the time Our point today is that we powerfully encounter the Holy Spirit in lifelong meditation on the Word of God. There is an entire attack on your day, every day, to keep you out of the Scriptures, Greg Weiss says. And you need to do battle with yourself. And you need to find the grace of God to win that battle. Don't let your day get to a place where you don't get enough of God's Word. Fight and win that battle. Okay? Number one, 
We read it. We take in a lot of scripture. And you don't need a one-year Bible reading plan. You need a 10-year plan. And you need a lifetime plan. You can have a goal, something like, I want to read the Bible each year or twice a year or every two years. You know, try to set high goals. But, but have a, a plan for the next 10, 20 years for your whole life and say, this is what I want my life to look like. I want to be like those who pass the faith down to me so that I can know him who is my strength and him who is with me so that I can be careful to do everything he says because I've actually read it and probably not just once, which is just enough to forget it. And you also, in your Bible reading plan, you need to be thinking about your children, those you disciple, and your grandchildren. That's part of making a Bible reading plan. You need to know why you're doing this and what you want to pass on to them, what spiritual heritage you want to pass on to them. I go for jogs periodically because I want to be able to go for jogs in 10 years and 15 years and 20 years when my son is in high school and in college. I want to be able to go jogging with him, and that's not going to happen unless I jog now. So that's one of the main reasons I ever exercise. I, and because that's my plan, I will continue to exercise more and more regularly because my plan is to pass down a spiritual heritage to him better than what I received uh, growing up. And, and even now, I want to take everything I can of it as best as I can and pass the baton to my son and my daughter and those I'm discipling and will disciple. And I want to do that well. And that's one of the reasons I read the Bible. That needs to be part of your Bible reading plan. Number two, read it in the Holy Spirit. That happens by remembering that you can be real smart and you can be real disciplined and you can never get behind on your 2017 or your 20 whatever Bible reading plan and you can still have Jesus Christ come down from heaven and stand right in front of you and you'll think he's an idiot. That'll happen to you unless you cry out to God and you start your Bible reading often with, have mercy on me, my eyes are blind. I could never even understand what this means. I'm never going to meet the living God by reading a book unless you help me. You have to read supernaturally. So pray for it. So you pray for a hunger for God's word and you make a plan and begin to put it into practice, get some accountability, and read it a lot. Number two, and, and you start that by praying for a hunger for God's word. Then number two, you have to read it supernaturally because there's no other Christian way to read the Bible. Everything about Christianity is supernatural. This isn't just like us standing in this room. There are spiritual forces. There are unclean spirits. There are the Lord's ministering servants. And mainly, there's the Lord. And he's talking to you. And it's not me talking. I'm just a mouthpiece. And the Lord is actually saying things to you supernaturally. And you might be hearing them supernaturally. And if you are, you're encountering God. Read it to do it. Because if you don't come to the word saying, help me understand and help me be willing to do your will, then you'll be like the Pharisees and you'll love money and you'll love what people think of you and you literally won't understand what the scripture says, even if you read it a hundred or hundreds of times like they did. You've got to do this supernaturally and you're not going to get there by trying hard. Like that's absurd. So you've got to ask for it. God is supernatural. He will give you grace 
to understand supernatural things that would have been far greater than you. But didn't he come down and show himself in the fire? Didn't he come down and pull out his sword and say, I realize you can't do this. I know I told you to lead the people to land, but I realize, like, you and I both know you can't do it. So you can worship me and meditate on my word, and I'm going to go ahead of you, and I'm going to do what you can do. Didn't he do much more than that? Come in the flesh, come in the fire. He poured out his spirit on you. He wants you. He wants your heart and your soul, your whole life. This is supernatural stuff, and you've got to ask him, make me hungry for your word. Help me to want to do your will so that my mind can be opened so that I can be like a little kid and just be like, okay, and take it for what it says in the supernatural enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. You don't need to be the smartest guy and have gone to Pharaoh's best schools or great schools or have some real high test score or have gone to like some real good school. None of that is necessary. There's only one thing that's necessary. It's to be found sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his word in the supernatural anointing of the Holy Spirit. Passion gives birth to passion. Today, pray for a love for the scriptures and open them and start reading. Tomorrow, do it again. Keep planting. Keep planting zeal for the word of God by asking for it and then working that out in the strength God provides. And soon, something's going to grow and soon the fruit will be ripe and soon there will be fruit that will feed the next generation of Christians who come after us when we die. And it won't be all that long and we don't have much time, so we should probably get started. Don't get condemned. If you get behind or if you sin or if you read and you're nothing but bored or if you read and it just makes you like angry and anxious, <clears throat> something's happening spiritually inside you. Pray and talk with some qualified people to help you come to the Lord, not as a regular human or as a Pharisee, but as a Christian. That's a supernatural person. Read with willingness. If you read this without intending to take the crown off your head, saying like, I'm my own God, I do what I want. If you read this without intending to take yourself out of that position of authority over your own life, and without intending to lay it down at Christ's feet, you will not even understand the Bible, let alone do it, let alone Find Christ, the treasure that we see in the scripture marked here. Let's go to prayer. O oh God, our God, God of our fathers, God of Adam, God of Seth, God of Abraham and Noah, God of Isaac, Jacob, Elijah and David, God of Moses and Joshua, God of Hosea, God of Daniel, God of Ezekiel, God of John and Luke and Paul and Matthew, 
God of our fathers, God of all the monks in the Middle Ages who kept the scriptures intact and passed them on to the next generation. God who is powerful and whose word will never fall to the ground without accomplishing what you sent it out to do. Our God, create in us hunger for your scriptures, please. Change us from being unwilling and wanting nothing but to do our own thing or being concerned about what people think of us or being greedy for money and instead make us like you so that we can daily cry out help and have mercy and open my eyes so that I can see things, wonderful things in your law. And then Lord, enlighten us and fill us and bring us to the full measure of the stature of Christ to mature to, to maturity and wholeness and righteousness and health until your healing gets into our bones and we're filled with inexpressible joy and we say, God, thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the educated and you've revealed them to little children like me. What, what would you say to your servant? I've come to do your will. Amen.